Jehovah stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, and he made a proclamation throughout his kingdom and also in writing saying, you can go back and build the house of Jehovah in Jerusalem. So people go back. And then in chapter 4 and verse 24, it says, Then ceased the work of the house of God, which is at Jerusalem, and it ceased until the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia. So a little bit of background. I, I hope most of us remember this anyway. But um, there used to be a, a country called the United Kingdom, not, not the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, but the United Kingdom of Israel. And that United Kingdom became divided after the death of King Solomon, divided into a northern kingdom called Ephraim or Israel and a southern kingdom called Judah. That um, northern kingdom continued for hundreds of years until it was eventually taken away captive by the Assyrian Empire. And then the southern kingdom, Judah, continued for another hundred or so years until a king named Nebuchadnezzar came and attacked them and took them away captive to the land of Babylon. Jeremiah had prophesied that that captivity would last only 70 years. And after um, an initial two years, when a king named Darius reigned, uh, then subsequently a great king named Cyrus took over the kingdom of the Medes and the Persians. And according to prophecy, he allowed the children of Judah to go back and rebuild the temple. They went back. Well, when I say they, a small small proportion, small percentage of them went back. They went back led by two leaders, a civil leader and a religious leader. Civil leader called Zerubbabel, who was a descendant of King David, and a religious leader, Joshua, the high priest. And with enthusiasm, they started to rebuild the temple. But as always happens when the work of God is in progress, there was opposition. And on the face of it, Due to the opposition, they stopped working. But um, God knows what really was going on. On the face of it, wasn't the real reason why they stopped working. They stopped working because of selfishness and self-interest. And so God raised up two men as prophets to revitalize the work, to encourage the leaders and to challenge the people. And those prophets, as we read here, are called in Ezra chapter 5, verse 1, Haggai and Zechariah. The period of time between when Cyrus had allowed the people to return and rebuild and what we read in verse 24 here, the second year of Darius, was 16 years. So for 16 years... Um, well, maybe 14 years, the work had stopped. Two men, I'll keep reading, Ezra chapter 5. Now the prophets, Haggai the prophet and Zechariah the son of Iddo, prophesied to the Jews that were in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of the God of Israel did they prophesy to them. 
Then rose up Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Jeshua, the son of Josedek, began and began to build the house of God, which is at Jerusalem. And with them were the prophets of God who helped them. We go a little further on into chapter six um, and verse 14. And the elders of the Jews built and they prospered through the prophesying of Haggai the prophet and Zechariah the son of Iddo. And they built and completed it according to the commandment of the God of Israel and according to the commandment of Cyrus and Darius and Artaxerxes, king of Persia. And this house was finished on the third day of the month Adar, which was in the sixth year of the reign of King Darius. Two men, two prophets, Haggai, we're going to find out he was an older man, and Zechariah, a younger man, were used by God in stimulating the leaders and the people to get back into the work of God of rebuilding the house of God. Now let's turn to the book of Haggai. I hope that's enough background. Haggai, I believe, was an old man. At one point in his prophecy, he challenged the older men and he said, those of you who've seen what the house looked like in the old days, um, you think what we're doing now looks pretty small. If Haggai himself was not amongst those old men as one who had also seen it, they wouldn't have given much credit to what he was saying. Haggai, an old man, he speaks a short message. Two chapters in this book. Two chapters covering a period of just under four months. And in just under four months, he speaks five messages. I want to contrast that with Zechariah. Zechariah is a young man. And at one point in his prophecy, an angel is instructed to go and speak to this young man, to Zechariah. He's a young man and he writes a long prophecy. Um, his long prophecy took place on only about four occasions. And the period of time overlapped the prophecy of Haggai. We'll, we'll come to that when we get to it. But um, Haggai, five messages. Let's look briefly at these messages. The first one comes in the second year, chapter 1, verse 1, second year of Darius, sixth month, first day of the month. And he speaks a message to the leaders, to Zerubbabel and to Joshua. And Ian, he challenges them firstly. He speaks to their conscience. He says in verse 2, the people are saying the time has not come to build the house of Jehovah. He goes on a little bit further to expose why they were saying that. They were saying that because they wanted to build their own houses. They wanted to decorate their houses. They wanted to spend the money that they were earning on themselves. And God was not pleased with that. So Haggai challenges firstly the leaders. He says to them in, in verse 4, the people are dwelling in houses with fancy ceilings. They're, they're earning lots of money, but the money seems to be just disappearing through the holes in the bags that they're putting the money into. 
nothing is working for them. And so Haggai says to them in verse 7, consider your ways. So let's remember, that's the first day of the sixth month. His next message begins in verse 12. And it begins with a positive response from the people. Zerubbabel, Joshua, and the remnant of the people hearkened to the word. Wonderful. If you read the date, um, it's the 24th day of the sixth month. So it's, um, what's that exactly? Is that right? No, just about three, year, three weeks later. After hearing the message from God through Haggai, the people listened to it. And so Haggai gives them here for the second time a second message. And the second message is really short and really simple. It's, I am with you, says Jehovah. Great message. Um, Now, chapter 2, we come to his third message. This is in the seventh month on the 21st day of the month. So we're now looking at uh, about four weeks after his second message. And this time it's a message of encouragement because whenever there is a work of God, there's certainly a danger that something will come in to discourage that. You know, we we, we think of a, a... a session like we're having now, a group of young people all together, all enthusiastic about learning the word of God, something easily could come in and disrupt that. Something discouraging like being locked down for too long and you feel like giving up. Anything can come along and discourage a work of God. And so this time Haggai's message is a message of encouragement. He, He tells the people, again, reminds them, of what God had said before in verse 4, I am with you. First part of the encouragement. Second part is that the word of God remains with them. The third part, my spirit remains with you. The word of God, God himself, the spirit of God, the encouragement is that I am with you. And with the strength of this, the people go on and continue in the work. We come to his fourth message, and that begins in verse 10 on the 24th day of the ninth month. So this is now three months after his second message. Remember, the second message was about three weeks after the first, so um, not quite four months. He's going to give another message on this same day. But this fourth message is directed to the priests. And he talks to the priests about the need for being separate from evil. He asks them a question and he says, is it possible to make something which is unclean clean by moving a clean thing near to it? If you've got a bowl full of rotten apples If you put a good apple into the bowl of rotten apples, will that somehow make the rotten apples get better? And the priests answer, no way. And then 
Now I'm, I'm giving some examples here. You can read the verses yourself. He says, but, but what if you take a rotten apple from a bowl of rotten apples and put it in a bowl of good fresh apples? What will happen? The good apples will go off. And he challenges the priests about this. He says, you need to know what it is to be separate from evil and not have contact with evil things because you too will become defiled. Then, lastly, his fifth message comes in verse 20. But just before that, he speaks really clearly about this particular date. On, um, in verse 18, he, he says, Consider, I pray you, from this day and onward, from the four and twentieth day of the ninth month, from the day that the foundation of Jehovah's temple was laid, consider it. And he goes on and says at the end of verse 19, from this day I will bless you. So his fourth message on that date, um, he takes a special care. He takes special care to emphasise that date. That's the date from which God had promised to shower his blessing upon the people, the date that the foundation of the temple was laid. Lastly, his last message, on the same day, he gives a message about future judgment and future blessing. And he says something special directly to Zerubbabel, the governor, the civil leader. And he, said, he, he speaks to Zerubbabel um, that he's going to be, verse 23, he's going to be made as a signet. He's going to be put into a special position. He's going to stand out as one who is shining and is, is um, I don't know what word to use, yeah. symbolic. That's probably the word. This is the first symbolic thing, really, that Haggai says in his whole prophecy. Everything else had been direct and plain and black and white. Now, when he speaks about Zerubbabel, he talks of him in a symbolic way. And this gives us a little hint that Zerubbabel is intended by God as a picture of Christ. And that forms a nice little springboard into the prophecy of Zechariah. Because as much as Haggai's prophecies were direct and black and white and literal, Zechariah's prophecies are symbolic and obscure and require deep consideration and deep study. And he too takes up men like Zerubbabel and uses them in a symbolic way. So we'll flip over the page now and go to the prophecy of Zechariah. He starts his prophecy, chapter 1, verse 1, in the eighth month in the second year of Darius. So his prophecy is sandwiched between the, um, the third and the fourth message of Haggai. And his first prophecy like Haggai's, is really plain and really direct. He, he, he reminds the people about what their forefathers had done wrong. 
He reminds them that their forefathers had been sent prophets and they'd refused to listen to the prophets. And the people in hearing Zechariah, they acknowledge what he said, they accept the truth of it, and in effect, they repent. Hearing the word of Zechariah, hearing the word of Haggai, the people repent, change their ways, and get back to work in building the temple. That's a, that's a key starting point to understand the prophecy of Zechariah. His message is addressed to a repentant people. His message is addressed to a people who are involved in doing the work of God. His message is addressed to leaders who are being used by God to to stimulate and to encourage his work. So, So remember that as a key. Zechariah's message is a message to a repentant people. That first word is on the... Well, it doesn't tell us the the day, but the eighth month of the second year. He gets a second message in verse 7, and that begins on the 24th day of the 11th month. So this is now after Haggai's messages have been completed. Now Zechariah is, um, he's on his own, so to speak, in, in delivering messages. But this is quite an interesting message. Um, it says in verse 7, the word of Jehovah came unto Zechariah the prophet, the son of Berechiah, the son of Iddo, saying, I saw by night. This message is comprised of ten visions, visions that he saw in one night. These visions commence here in chapter 1, verse 7, and go all the way through to the end of chapter 6. Now, I'll admit here that different people count Zechariah's visions in a different way. Some say there are nine. Some say there are eight. Um, I'm very happy to say there are ten, and I'll tell you why in a moment. I'll tell you what the visions are. First vision starts in... Chapter 1, verse 7, and it's a vision of horses. The second vision is in chapter 1, verse 18, and it's a vision of horns. Then in chapter 1, verse 20, he sees a vision of craftsmen. Now, I better have a look at the time and decide what to do here. I think rather than tell you what the visions are without saying anything about them, I better talk about what they mean. In the first vision, he sees horses. And those horses, there are four different kinds of horse. Those horses are a symbolic representation of the fact that God is governing all the circumstances behind the scenes. In particular, God, in relation to the people of Judah, was governing behind the scenes by using Gentile empires. The first Gentile empire was that of Babylon under King Nebuchadnezzar. The second empire was the empire of the Medes and the Persians, and we read about Cyrus and Darius. They were some of the kings from that empire. The third 
is the empire of Alexander the Great, and then the fourth was the Roman Empire. I think there's there's something of a link between the, the four different kinds of horses and these four empires, but it's an abstract link because what these horses are doing is they're moving around behind the scenes. They're inspecting things. They're looking at things and they're bringing messages and they're influencing the outcomes. This is the God's symbolic way of showing that he governs everything behind the scenes. And he's letting Zechariah know this and he's letting the people know. The second message, the second vision, is a, a vision of four horns. And Zechariah asks the question, and he does that with with a lot of these visions. He asks, what's what's all this mean? Sometimes he gets an answer. Sometimes he doesn't. Sometimes he doesn't even bother asking. Sometimes the the, the visions are are symbolic and, and pretty clear. Other times they're pretty obscure. This time it's fairly clear. Four horns, they match up with those four empires that God has used and will use to scatter the nation of Judah. But not only did he send four empires to scatter and to discipline his people, the next vision he sees four craftsmen or four carpenters, four four that would bring restoration. Now, if if the four empires were were Babylon, the Medes and the Persians, Alexander the Great and the the Greek Empire and the Romans, he doesn't exactly say what the four craftsmen are or the four carpenters, but it gives us a hint that at the end of the work of every one of those horns that has scattered, there's a work that will bring judgment upon the horn that did the scattering and also bring restoration and recovery for the people. Wonderful promise from God that he's not just intent on hurting his people, he's intent on bringing them blessing even if he has to chase them. There's the three visions in chapter one. Chapter two, the entire chapter is one vision. And it's a vision of a man with a measuring line in his hand. And this vision is really a promise of God's blessing, a promise that the temple that they had started building would be completed. But it's a promise that goes much further than just the immediate circumstances in which the people lived. It's a promise that has um, two meanings. One meaning, the temple that you are building now will be completed. The other meaning is that God is going to bring full and complete and final blessing to the people of Israel in the future. We don't have time to go through detail in an overview like this, but um, if you just note that down as the general intention it might help as you study the chapter. Chapter three gives vision number five. The whole chapter is one vision. We've studied this on another occasion um, to, to look at the effect of the work of the advocate on behalf of one who has sinned. What 
Zechariah sees here is Joshua, the high priest, standing as in a courtroom, clothed in filthy garments. And when we think of this, we've got to think back to Haggai's prophecy when his fourth message was addressed to the priests. And he spoke to the priests about the problem of being defiled. Here was Joshua the priest, and he somehow was defiled. He wasn't able to do his priestly work because somehow sin had come into his life. Now, this isn't a vision of Joshua merely individually as an individual person. Joshua represents the entire nation. The entire nation had become defiled by their their own personal sinfulness. They'd become defiled by being associated with things that they shouldn't have been. They'd stopped working for God because they'd been so absorbed with self-interest, making money and making their, their personal circumstances better. And this vision shows that God was working behind the scenes to restore them and to recover them from that sinful condition that they were in. It's not just a symbol of Joshua himself, and it's not just a symbol of what the people of Judah were like back then. It's also a symbol of what the people of Israel are now, so that in one day coming, God is going to cleanse them from that sinfulness and bring in ultimate and complete blessing. In the course of of seeing this vision, Zechariah sees at the end of the chapter a man whose name is the branch. There's a, um, a thread running through the entire book where Zechariah loves to point out the greatness of Christ. It, 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 it sometimes comes in sort of just by the by, a little little side reference. It sometimes comes in as a major theme. But here's one of the little side references to show that um, Joshua, the high priest, is intended by God in his cleansed condition to be a picture of the Lord Jesus. There are two men in this book who are pictures of the Lord Jesus, Joshua, the high priest, and Zerubbabel, the governor, the civil leader, a priest and a king. It takes two men to give a full picture of what the Lord Jesus will be in the future day when he comes to reign. He will be a priest and a king. Now we'll jump to chapter 4. Chapter 4 is vision number, I'm losing count, number six. Vision number six, and the entire chapter is one vision. Zechariah sees two olive trees standing either side of the lampstand or the candlestick in the temple. And unlike the candlestick in the tabernacle that had to be supplied with oil manually every day, This candlestick was continually supplied by olive oil flowing out of the olive trees into a big bowl feeding the lamps. Zechariah looks at this and he says, now what's this all about? What does this mean? 
and the angel interprets the vision for him in, in a rather obscure way, but in a way that shows that the service of Zerubbabel, the governor, and the service of Joshua, the high priest, were intended by God to have the end result that the temple would be complete and that the temple would be a place of light. The temple would be a place of spiritual illumination. And I think this is a message that we as Christians need to take to heart, that often when we think about light, we only think about things like where the Lord Jesus said, I am the light of the world, or where the Apostle Paul said about us as Christians being in the world as lights shining in darkness. This is not the light of testimony going out to the world. This is the light within the temple where because of spiritual exercise and because of the the service of spiritual men, illumination is provided to those who are exercised in heart to be there. And that's really how it ought to be whenever Christians come together for the study of the scriptures. There ought to be men who can stand like um, Zerubbabel and Joshua did and be channels for the flow of the work of the Holy Spirit to provide spiritual illumination. The vision that Zechariah sees, it's especially an encouragement to Zerubbabel. It says that in in verse 9. There there was, again, this potential for people to say, look, it's a day of small things. There's only a small proportion of the whole nation that's bothered coming back to Jerusalem to help with this work. And it's a pretty small temple compared to the great temple that Solomon built. And we don't feel like we're doing much, really. We don't feel very significant. But um, the the word that came through um, Zechariah was, Who has despised the day of small things? God is with us. The work is not man's work. It's not a work of man's power. It's not a work of man's might. It's a work of the spirit of God. And Zechariah was given to encourage the leaders and the people by this word. Okay, chapter five. Two visions in chapter five. Pretty strange visions. A vision of a flying roll, not a bread roll, a um, a, a, a roll of, of paper or parchment, a roll upon which was written something that brought a curse. It was 10 cubits by 20 cubits, exactly the same dimension as the holy place in the tabernacle, or exactly the same dimension as the court of Solomon's temple. It's a dimension that sort of says you can come pretty close, but you can't come any further. And on this roll was written something on the back and something on the front. The thing that was written on the, on the, well, on one side related to using Jehovah's name falsely. And the thing that was written on the other side related to stealing. And Using Jehovah's name falsely was the central commandment of the first five of the Ten Commandments. Stealing was the the central commandment of the second five relating to man. It's almost as if the, the, um, the law itself 
is being summarized by this flying roll. It goes everywhere. And everywhere it goes, it brings a curse. Because everywhere it goes, it exposes the fact that men have not kept the law. And it's as if in this vision, God is saying through Zechariah, if you attempt to take up the work of God on the basis of the law, it's only going to bring a curse. Don't forget, everything is going to be done by grace. At the end of chapter 4, when it talks about them bringing the, the final stone of the temple, they'll be shouting, grace, grace. It's all a work of grace. It's all a work of the Spirit of God. And never forget that. If we try to take up something on a legal basis, it'll only bring curse. Second vision is something else flying. It's a flying ephah. Now, an ephah was a, a unit of measurement. Um, often think of this at the, the first um, the first ephahs that are mentioned in scripture are parts of an ephah. I think Abraham was the first one who who had um, the third part of an ephah where Sarah provided cakes for Abraham's visitors, provided food for them. Um, and an ephah represents a, a measurement, particularly a measurement of food. And in the New Testament, we read about a woman who hid three, who hid leaven in three measures of meal. I think if, um, if you take the time to study carefully this vision, you'll see that it represents a work of idolatry. There's a woman who is put into this ephah and a plate of lead is put onto it. One woman goes in and then two women come out. And as we learned when we were studying the book of Proverbs, a woman, when presented symbolically in scripture, usually represents a religious system or a religious principle. And in this vision, this ephah with the woman a wicked woman placed into it that's flying, flies in the direction of Babylon. And it goes back to Babylon. It goes back to the place where it belongs. I understand this prophecy to mean that what God had done in sending the nation of Judah to Babylon into captivity was that he was getting rid of idolatry out of their midst. They were so guilty of idolatry. One of the reasons for their captivity was their idol worship. And it's as if God said to them, you want idols? I'll give you idols. I'll, I'll take you to the place where idolatry was invented. I'll take you to the place where idolatry is everywhere. I'll take you to the place where you'll have a gut full of idolatry where it'll come out your nostrils. It'll, the idolatry will go back to where it belongs. And when Israel returned from Babylon, or when Judah returned from Babylon, we never hear about them worshipping idols again. You look all through the life of the Lord Jesus. He dealt with lots of things and lots of issues. There were lots of problems and lots of kinds of sin. There was, there was demon possession. There were all sorts of things. But not once do we read of idolatry amongst that nation that he came to. Now, sadly, 
in the future, idolatry will spring up amongst them again. It will spring up where they're even willing to worship a man as if he was God. And in the book of Revelation, we see how God deals with that. And we ultimately see that he deals with a system of things, a woman system of things called um, a great harlot that's also called Great Babylon. So there's a, a bit of a hint here, um, not only about what God had done in the past in ridding the nation of idolatry, but what he's going to do in the future before he brings Israel into blessing. Okay, chapter 6, two more visions. Firstly, a vision of four chariots. And in these four chariots, there's another reminder for Zechariah and for the people that God is governing things behind the scenes. We, we, we could see that the four chariots pretty much correspond to the, the four kinds of horses that there were back in chapter one. So it's like a, um, a refresher, a reminder of how God works behind the scenes in bringing out his purposes and his desires. Lastly, vision number 10, and this is the one that people usually don't count. I should have said that when people count eight visions in Zechariah, they count the horns and the craftsmen in chapter one as if they were one vision. You can make up your own mind. Um, I believe they're two. Zechariah was shown two separate things. Here in chapter six, this last vision, it says, verse nine, and the word of Jehovah came unto me. I found in reading the book of Zechariah that when Zechariah is given a prophetic word to speak, it says the word of Jehovah came unto Zechariah the prophet. But when God speaks to him within a vision, it says, and the word of Jehovah came unto me. And so in this little section, I'd understand it that God is speaking to him within the vision that he was seeing. And he sees men who've come back from the captivity, men who are bringing gifts, and within the vision, God says to him, take from those gifts and form out of the gold and the silver crowns and put those crowns on the head of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Um, was this a word that Zechariah spoke as a prophecy? Or was it part of a vision? I, I, I strongly believe it's part of a vision. And in figure, um, speaking of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, again in verse 12, God speaks about him as a man whose name is the branch. And that's not Joshua personally. He's talking about the Lord Jesus. He's talking about one who is much greater than Joshua. But he goes on to say, and now make crowns and put them on the head of Joshua's associates. The men who are closely associated with Joshua, they'll have crowns as well. And, you know, in a future day when the Lord Jesus comes back to reign and he's a priest sitting on his throne, there'll be others who are reigning with him. Might be nice to think about who those others are. When we read the book of Revelation, we discover that all believers live and reign with Christ a thousand years 
wonderful thing. So in saying, behold, a man whose name is the branch, in verse 12, um, this fits in as being part of Zechariah's vision. We'll stop there with chapter 6. We've finished the visions. They all took place in one night, and that one night was, again, the 24th day of the 11th month in the second year of the reign of Darius. Come now to chapter 7. We've got another date. It's in the fourth year of Darius, in the ninth month. So it's some two, uh, yeah, two years later. Two years later than the night of visions, a group of men come to ask Zechariah a question about fasting. And they say, um, should we bother with this fasting that we've been doing um, in the fifth month? Is there any point to this? And in the course of the next two chapters, so chapter 7 and chapter 8, Zechariah gets five messages to speak. And he, he speaks to the people in answer to the question about fasting. The entire purpose um, is not only to tell them that um, God's not interested in some kind of ritual fasting. What he really wants is a moral change. That, that's part of the purpose. But the other part of the purpose of Zechariah's five messages here is, again, to speak about the glorious future that lies ahead for the nation of Judah. Okay, we jump to chapter 9. From chapter 9 to 14, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, there's two messages, two prophecies. First one is from 9 to 11. The second is from 12 to 14. And each of these is called a burden. Chapter 9, verse 1, the burden of the word of Jehovah. Both of these messages are not given dates. They're not related to the encouragement that Zechariah was giving to rebuild the temple. They're somehow completely separate. There's a link, of course but there's a much, much greater focus on the future, the near future and on the distant future. And through Zechariah, God is going to show what God has in mind for his people. Ultimately, problems that they're going to pass through, trouble, tribulation that they'll experience, judgment that will come upon them, and finally, blessing. And along the way, he's going to give them reasons why judgment will come upon them. So very quickly, I'm going to look at this time here again. In chapter 9, he speaks of a military leader coming down from the north, coming through um, Damascus, coming further down south through Tyre, going down into the land of the Philistines, coming near to Jerusalem and Jerusalem being protected. And a little bit later in the chapter, he relates this to a particular group of people. He calls in verse 13, Greece. What Zechariah does here is he really accurately describes 
one of the early attacks of Alexander the Great, the leader of the next empire. Now, I, I don't know, it's probably more than 100 years um, in the future to Zechariah's time that Alexander the Great commenced his empire. And there are people even who who, who um sceptics, rationalists, who, who read a chapter like this. I don't know why you bother reading a chapter like this if you don't believe in the Bible. But um, they'll read it and they say, oh, well, Zechariah was obviously writing after the event. This is much, much too accurate in describing um, Alexander the Great and his attack. Um, couldn't be possible that he was writing before the event. Well, if you have that kind of circular argument, I don't believe in prophecy, therefore when I read prophecy and it's accurate, therefore it can't be prophecy because I don't believe in prophecy. You know, um, what kind of argument is that? Zechariah, then in verse 9, he slips in something beautiful, a verse that I think we all know. He slips in a verse that speaks about the coming king of Zion. Rejoice greatly, daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, thy king cometh to thee. He is just and having salvation. Lowly and riding upon an ass, even upon a colt, the foal of an ass. And we know when that prophecy was quoted in Matthew's gospel, when the Lord Jesus rode into Jerusalem. But where Zechariah places it, he places it in deliberate contrast to the great leader, Alexander the Great. Rejoice greatly, daughter of Zion. When Alexander the Great came, it would have been tremble greatly, daughter of Zion. Behold, thy king cometh unto thee. Not behold an enemy king. He is just. Was Alexander just? I suspect not. And having salvation, was Alexander bringing salvation? He was attempting to bring destruction. Lowly. Alexander was a mighty king, nothing lowly about him. And riding upon an ass. An ass was a form of transport for royalty. A horse was a form of transport for a military warrior. Alexander was mighty in using horses. Zechariah is contrasting completely the the coming of Christ with the um, past coming of Alexander the Great. And then having spoken of the first coming of Christ, he skips thousands of years and talks about the distant future when the people of Jerusalem will be used by God as a tool in his hand to win a great military victory against the successors of this empire of Alexander. Now chapter 10. Chapter 10 is really special for using the phrase, I will. I think it uses the phrase, I will, 11 times. And the first I will speaks about God's judgment and God's punishment upon the nation. After speaking about his punishment upon the nation, the remaining 10 I wills speak about the way God will bring blessing to them in the future. 
Um, I won't read any of them. You can read them yourself. It's, um, it's a chapter that indicates that blessing is coming, but before blessing comes, judgment will have to come. Chapter 11, part of the same burden, part of the same theme. It gives more detail about God's governmental judgments upon the people. He starts the chapter by um, comparing the leaders to great trees and comparing them to lions and then comparing them to shepherds. And then in the course of the prophecy, Zechariah is given a job to do. He's given a task, something like Ezekiel had to do, something like Daniel had to, not Daniel, Jeremiah had to do. He had to play act a prophecy. He was told to do the work of a shepherd. And in doing the work of a shepherd, um, there, there came a point where it says, I, I destroyed three shepherds in one month. Now, I don't think that Zechariah like, literally would have killed people, but um, in, in a kind of symbolic way, it's, it's, it's as if his exposure of the character of those false shepherds um, morally destroyed them. I guess if we think of the Lord Jesus when he came as the good shepherd, it was the same. And all those, all the shepherds who came before him were thieves and robbers. There were those who pretended to rule the people like the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the Herodians. And like Zechariah, the Lord Jesus didn't kill them. But um, by, by virtue of the way he conducted his shepherdly service, he, he just destroyed the character that they had morally. The, the end result for Zechariah was that they, um, it seems like they gave him the sack from his job. He was doing too good a job. He was exposing people um, too badly. And when they sacked him, they, um, they said, well, look, we've contracted with you for, uh, for the work you're doing, so we're going to pay you out. They paid him out um, 30 silver pieces. And that might, might not sound very much, but um, if you compare it with the a Levite in, in the book of Judges, um, that Levite, when he was looking for a, a better position that he'd had before, was pretty happy to get 10 silver pieces for, for an annual salary. And, um, and I'm convinced there was no inflation in ancient Israel. Um, I think some of the laws that God had, had given made sure that was the case. No, no one was allowed to charge interest to his, his, his brother when he lent him money. And if someone bought a property from someone else, at the end of 50 years, he had to give it back. Um, and those sorts of things stopped inflation happening in Israel because you find when this prophecy is fulfilled, more than 400 years later, um, when Judas betrayed the Lord Jesus for 30 pieces of silver, more than 400 years later, 30 pieces of silver could still buy a potter's field on the fringe of the capital city. And I reckon today, um, three years' salary would still buy a fairly rubbishy plot of land and the circumference of a capital city anywhere in Australia or probably anywhere else around the world for that matter. Um, 30 pieces of silver was three years' salary. Zechariah might have been pretty happy with that. 
We think of the Lord Jesus being betrayed by Judas for 30 pieces of silver. I think Judas must have thought he was on a pretty good wicket. He'd, he'd given up um, his life to spend three years with the Lord, and here the, the Pharisees and the scribes were compensating him for it, and he thought that was okay. This, this prophecy is a prophecy that really speaks about the Lord Jesus, the work that Zechariah did doing the work of a shepherd. But it goes on, and Zechariah was to take, in verse 15, instruments of a foolish shepherd. He was to play act the behaviour of a completely different kind of shepherd. And that play act wasn't symbolic of the Lord Jesus, the coming good shepherd. It was symbolic of the coming Antichrist, who will behave towards the people in a way that's without care, without concern, without mercy, without compassion. And that man ultimately will come to destruction. That's spoken about in verse 17. So in, in this first burden, Zechariah is looking on to the distant future. He's looking on to the way God provides protection, firstly, from the attack of Alexander the Great. Secondly, to the way um, a, a true leader would come, a true king, not like Alexander. He's looking on to the way when the promised Messiah comes, he will be rejected. And he's looking on to the way in the distant future, a false leader will come, who will ultimately come under God's judgment. That's his first burden. The second burden begins in chapter 12. And that goes through to chapter 14. Just like in chapter 10, there was a repeat phrase, the phrase, I will. In chapters 12 to 14, there's a repeat phrase. It's the phrase, in that day. And I think it appears something like 16 times. It appears elsewhere in the rest of the book. I think only four other times in the rest of Zechariah's prophecy, but what he's focusing on here is that future day, a day where through passing through tribulation, they will ultimately come into blessing when the Lord Jesus, the promised king, reigns over this whole world, really. Chapter 12. Um, well, I don't think I can talk about any detail in Chapter 12 in the time remaining. Um, other than at the end of the chapter, he speaks of a special day coming for the nation of Israel. It's that day when they look upon him whom they have pierced in verse 10. This speaks about the Lord Jesus who was pierced when hanging on the cross. And when he returns, the people of Judah They'll look upon him and they'll say, we were guilty of his murder. We were guilty of getting rid of him. And it goes on to say that they will mourn. They'll repent. They'll recognize you can't mourn as a nation. You can't kind of get everyone together and hook up on Zoom or something and say, look, let's all repent. No, it says everyone mourns on their own. Every family will be apart. And the husbands and wives, even in the family, will be apart. They will feel personally and deeply the guilt, their guilt, 
in having murdered their promised Messiah. But as chapter 13 opens, it shows God's response to that repentance, that God provides for them a fountain for sin and for uncleanness, that very Messiah whom they pierced, that spear that touched his side on the cross brought forth the blood to save. And God opens this fountain for their sin and for their uncleanness at the beginning of chapter 13. But as chapter 13 proceeds, it goes on to show some of the reason why it was that God had to bring judgment and difficulty upon them in the course of their history. It's because of the fact that there were wounds put in the hands and in the side of the one who was going to be their future leader. Some wonderful message about the Lord Jesus in this chapter. We might come back to it in a moment. Chapter 14, it opens by talking about a terrible attack that will be made on the nation when it has been restored back to the land of Israel in the future. An attack that results in two-thirds of the people being destroyed. An attack that results in one-third of the people experiencing God's deep, deep chastening. An attack that will result in God defeating the attackers and in God bringing blessing to his people. The way God does that is that um, it talks about Jehovah's feet standing on the Mount of Olives. The Jehovah who will stand upon the Mount of Olives will be the Jesus who was put on the cross of Calvary. And he's going to be the one who brings Israel into blessing. He's going to be the one that um, rescues them from the, the terrible attack that's made against them. And he'll establish his reign over this earth so that all the nations of the earth are required to come up to Jerusalem and worship once a year. The whole chapter shows that um, what we call the millennium, from looking at the book of Revelation, it shows that that period of time is introduced with judgment, judgment upon the enemies, judgment upon the guilty of the nation of Israel, judgment in a sense of God's chastening against his people of Judah to bring them into blessing. It begins with judgment. And throughout the course of the millennium, judgment will continue. It won't only be a reign of peace and a reign of blessing, but peace and blessing will be maintained because there'll be a king who rules in righteousness. And anything that's done to disturb the peace, anything that's done to um, disrespect him in his reign, anything that's done that would have the intent of causing damage or harm to people, it will be dealt with swiftly. You know, people say today, oh, if God's this, if God's that, why does this happen? Why does that, why does that happen? Why? Because Christ is not reigning yet. When he does, everything will be in order and everything will be for blessing. 
But that blessing will be maintained by a firm rule, by swift judgment. That's kind of the end of the book, but um, we've got a couple, oh no, we haven't got any time remaining. Um, maybe another time and in another circumstance, I'd like to talk about the sufferings of Christ in the book of Zechariah. If you want to try and search for them yourself, you'll see that there's four kinds of suffering that are presented, sometimes symbolically, sometimes really in, in plain black and white language. The first form of suffering is because of who he was, a sinless man living in a sinful world. The Lord Jesus suffered. Second form of suffering is because he accepted from his father what Luke's gospel calls a cup, what Zechariah calls being smitten. He says, smite the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. Towards the end of the Lord's life, um, he was placed in a new position by God where instead of being protected and preserved from everyone who came against him, he was delivered into man's hands. Zechariah calls that smiting. The result of that was sheep being scattered. Third reason for the Lord Jesus to suffer was that he suffered for righteousness from man. And because man treated the Lord Jesus, the righteous one, in that way, judgment comes upon man. We see that repeatedly throughout Zechariah. And then lastly, he suffered for sin from God. And Zechariah speaks about that when he says, um, Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man that is my fellow. That's Zechariah 13, verse 7. So I'll, I'll leave you with those. Um, there's a wonderful study to study the, the character and the sufferings of the Lord Jesus in the book of Zechariah. It's, um, it's a somewhat obscure book, but it contains so many well-known prophecies about the Lord Jesus that um, if you read it, if you don't understand it, don't worry. Look at those bits that you do understand Rejoice in them, delight in them, have your soul built up by them and um, just delight in the greatness of the Lord Jesus as he's presented in this book. That's all, folks. <laughs>